three, two, one, zero, zero, and liftoff. This is Nuclear Knowledge. Production of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. Welcome to another exciting episode of Nuclear Knowledge, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. I'm your host, Derek Williams, and today's show is about nuclear command, control, and communications and the triad. The views of the host are his own. Before we get into today's topic, let's review some key concepts surrounding our discussion. Nuclear Command and Control, NC2, is the exercise of authority and direction by the President as the Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Armed Forces through established National Command Authority lines over nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons systems, and nuclear operations of military forces. While Nuclear Command and Control and Communications, NC3, are the means through which the presidential authority is exercised and operational command and control of nuclear operations is conducted. NC3 consists of facilities, equipment, communications, procedures, and personnel that enable presidential nuclear direction to be carried out. NC3 system performs five critical functions. Situation monitoring, including warning and attack characterization, planning, decision-making, force direction, including receiving and distributing presidential orders, and force management. You can think of NC2 as the orders and NC3 as the stuff that gets the orders from the president to the nuclear forces. Since November 15, 1960, the date of the first deterrent patrol of the USS George Washington, the U.S. has operated a strategic nuclear triad from air, land, and sea. These three legs consist of strategic bombers, B-52s and B-2s, land-based intercontinental ballistic missiles, the Minuteman III, and submarine-launched ballistic missiles, Trident D-5 missiles launched from Ohio ballistic missile submarines. Each leg possesses unique attributes. Together, they promote a mutually supportive and flexible strategic deterrent for the country. These unique and overlapping capabilities allow the triad to become more than just the sum of its parts. The triad's overlapping attributes help ensure the enduring survivability of American deterrence capabilities. They allow the president to hold adversary targets at risk of attack throughout any crisis or conflict. Because each leg of the triad has distinct strengths and weaknesses, the president can hold a range of static, hardened, relocatable, hardened and deeply buried, time-sensitive, geographically complex, and area targets at risk. The U.S. and NATO also have dual-capable aircraft fighters that are capable of delivering B-61 nuclear gravity bombs. These forces are critical to our NATO extended deterrence mission and are a visible symbol of our commitment to NATO security and method of burden sharing across the NATO alliance. The DCA mission has significantly aided U.S. nonproliferation goals by providing a security assurance that enables countries to forego developing indigenous nuclear weapons. These DCA fighters are not in the triad and thus will not be discussed further during this episode. 
Bombers are the most flexible and visible leg of the triad. Flexibility comes in two forms. First, they can attack an adversary from any direction, which makes them ideal for difficult targets. Bombers can strike any target regardless of terrain, borders, or location. This flexibility is only enhanced by the fact that B-52H carries the variable yield air-launched cruise missile, Alcom, and the B-2 can carry both the B-61 and B-83 variable yield gravity bombs. Thus, bombers are able to strike targets with a wide range of yields to hold at risk hardened targets or limit collateral damage. Second, bombers are the only leg of the triad that once launched are recallable. This attribute pairs with the visibility of bombers because bombers are generated in a way that is visible to space-based surveillance satellites. They provide the United States the ability to signal an adversary and escalate in discrete steps that then offer the opportunity to de-escalate the ultimate objective. Loading bombers with nuclear weapons, moving them to forward bases, and conducting flights in geographic regions are visible ways to signal an adversary of American resolve and intent. A mentor of mine, Lieutenant General Richard Clark, likes to refer to bombers as the rheostat of deterrence. Since bombers are no longer on day-to-day alert, changing the alert posture can turn up deterrence threats and rapidly increase the number of nuclear weapons on alert and options available to the president. The air-launched cruise missile and its eventual replacement, the long-range standoff cruise missile, extend the effective range of bombers and deny sanctuary to the enemy. By extending the range of bombers, cruise missiles reduce the risk to aircrew, increase aircraft survivability, and reduce support requirements for standoff strikes, such as tankers and strike support aircraft. Cruise missiles increase the survivability of each bomber, since each cruise missile's survivability is independent of the other cruise missiles. The survivability provided by cruise missiles lends to the credibility of the bomber leg and the stability of nuclear deterrence. ICBMs are the nation's on-alert nuclear force that provides 24-7, 365 option that can strike targets on the other side of the world in less than half of an hour. Because the ICBM force is always on alert, the president can strike time-sensitive targets if necessary. Their ability to penetrate existing defenses provides an assured strike capability. With only a small number of submarine-launched ballistic missiles, SLBMs, on alert at any given time, and with the bomber force off alert, the alert status of the ICBM is particularly vital. In order to destroy the American ICBM force, an adversary must strike more than 450 hardened targets. This is a daunting task, demands an adversary maintain a large and accurate fleet of ICBMs. Even with such a capability, the risk of failing to destroy the entire ICBM force is significant and a reason for pause when contemplating an attack on the United States. This is an important point worth reiterating. Unlike the bomber and ICBM and submarine force, destroying ICBM force requires a large nuclear attack on the American homeland. Thus, the stakes are much higher. Striking a ballistic missile submarine with a torpedo or shooting down a bomber may not lead to a nuclear response, but a nuclear attack on the ICBM field certainly would. Additionally, the on-alert ICBM force gives the president the option to launch under attack. This option, if executed, would result in an adversary striking empty holes. This possibility further complicates an adversary's decision calculus by making the complete failure of a first strike more probable. 
This enhances deterrence by severely reducing the perceived benefits of a strike against the ICBM force. Submarine-launched ballistic missiles provide the most secure and survivable leg of the nuclear triad. Submarines combine mobility, accuracy, and high yield to hold hardened targets at risk. Unlike ICBMs, submarines can move, which allows them to modify their launch point to minimize third country overflight, change the re-entry angle, and attack azimuth, unlike ICBMs, striking challenging targets. While not prompt like ICBMs, submarines provide an on-alert option to the president that is able to shape its trajectory and therefore alter warning time for the adversary. Now that we've recapped NC2, NC3, and the triad, we can bring everything together and discuss how we link these shooters back to the president. Each leg of the triad faces unique challenges to receive NC2 messages from the president. ICBMs, because of their static location and extensive infrastructure, offer the most robust and least number of challenges for NC3 systems. Since they are not mobile, constraints like size and weight are not issues. Additionally, hardline communications are available for use. Bombers, unlike ICBMs, are highly mobile. Aircraft, even large bomber aircraft, have limitations on size, weight, and power for communication systems. Since bombers can fly anywhere on Earth, they require global communication systems and cannot rely on hardline communications or line-of-sight communications. Additionally, the bomber force faces challenging meteorological conditions throughout flight that may affect the propagation of electromagnetic communications waves. Submarines, similar to bombers, are mobile. Therefore, hardline and line-of-sight communications are unavailable. While submarines cannot travel over land due to the vast oceans, their communication needs are almost as global as the bomber force. Submarines, unlike bombers, face a unique challenge of receiving transmissions while underwater. While this is a difficult challenge, the U.S. Navy employs both technological capabilities and operational tactics to balance communication requirements with survivability concerns. All U.S. triad delivery platforms must receive orders from the president under both the best and worst conditions possible. This means being able to maintain presidential connectivity before, during, and after a nuclear exchange. Due to the physics of nuclear weapons detonations, as discussed in previous nuclear knowledge episodes with Dr. Wally Clark, the trans and post-nuclear environment can be quite challenging for communications. Blast, shock, thermal radiation, electromagnetic pulse, transient radiation effects on electronics, tree for short, and blackout can all strain both communications equipment and their electromagnetic waves they transmit and receive. Blackout is the interference with electromagnetic waves resulting from an ionized region of the atmosphere. Nuclear detonations generate a flow of gammas and x-rays that ionize atoms and molecules in the air. This creates a large region of ions with more positively charged atoms closer to the detonation, which can interfere with communication transmissions by altering their propagation. A high-altitude or exoatmospheric detonation produces a large ionized region of the upper atmosphere that could be as large as thousands of kilometers in diameter and lasts up to several hours after the detonation. This could interfere with communication signals to and from satellites and AM radio waves relying on atmospheric reflection. 
A surface or low altitude burst produces a smaller ionized region of the lower atmosphere that could be as large as tens of kilometers and last up to a few tens of minutes. These bursts could interfere with communication signals that rely on line-of-sight transmissions if the nuclear detonation is between the sender and receiver. Since these nuclear effects alter separate frequencies differently, nuclear delivery platforms require communication systems across a wide range of waveforms to be able to overcome limitations and ensure presidential connectivity. Former commander of Strategic Air Command, Larry D. Welch, once said, If nuclear weapons are not safe, they are intolerable. If they are not reliable, they are relevant. This is the heart of what is known as the always-never dilemma. Nuclear weapons must always work when directed by the president and never detonate under any other circumstances. NC3 is crucial to the credibility of our nuclear deterrent. Without this critical connection, our nuclear force is irrelevant and deterrence could fail rapidly and catastrophically. Resilient NC3 and nuclear forces convinces adversaries that the cost-benefit of inaction outweighs the cost-benefit of action and thus is deterred from pursuing actions against U.S. vital interests. If you're interested in this topic and would like to learn more, I have some book recommendations. First, the 2020 Nuclear Matters Handbook is a great overview of the nuclear enterprise. Second, Managing Nuclear Operations by Ash Carter provides a detailed discussion of the technical pros and cons of each discrete communication frequency. Lastly, Nuclear Command Control and Communications, a primer on U.S. systems and challenges by James Wirtz and Jeffrey Larson, offers a brief history of NC3 and looks at how modern cyber and space capabilities affect NC3. Thank you for listening to today's Nuclear Knowledge Show. I hope you learned something new and valuable about deterrence. Nuclear Knowledge is a production of NIDS, a 501c3 organization dependent on your donations to provide this podcast. Every donation helps keep this and many other deterrence-related activities happening and helps to bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. This podcast is produced weekly, and each episode is released on Monday. If you enjoyed this show, check out our other podcast, The Nuclear View. You can catch it and all of our podcasts at thinkdeterrence.com. I want to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all of our fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative nuclear knowledge. A production of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies.